Support for WIPR's podcasts comes from Brightview Senior Living. Since 1999, Brightview has proudly served Greater Baltimore with vibrant, independent living, assisted living, memory care, and enhanced care. Find a community near you at brightviewseniorliving.com. So I moved out with my kids, and the house looked as good as it had in the pictures. Didn't seem like anything was wrong, really. And the weather in Minnesota was improving. You know, we got there in April, and it was getting warmer, and things with snow was melting. But a funny thing happened. As the, you know, as the spring came on, I began to feel like I was shutting down. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. I'm Laura Wexler. And I'm Jessica Hankin. And this week, we're continuing a series we call Return to the Stoop, in which we feature a memorable Stoop story and explore various fascinating questions with the storyteller. Before we get started, we want to thank our longtime sponsor, the Park School. Park School Baltimore is a pre-K through grade 12 non-sectarian awesome school located just right outside of the city. So today, as a special treat in honor of Halloween, we have as our guest Baltimore-based mystery novelist Sujata Massey, and we're going to listen to her story from a 2013 Stoop show called It's a Mystery. Let's take a listen. Because I write mystery and historical suspense fiction, I really believe in the power of the imagination. And for that reason, I don't generally believe haunted house stories and um, all the unsolved mysteries. I think that there's somebody creative behind it and the story has been repeated or else there's some explanation we haven't gotten to. Anyway, that was the mantra that I went by until about eight years ago when I left Baltimore to move to Minnesota. We moved there um, for my husband's work, familiar story, I'm sure to a lot of people. And um, he went on ahead and was house hunting in the middle of the winter and there was hardly anything there. And he wound up sending me a picture over the internet of a beautiful house one block from an elementary school. We had a kindergartner and a second grader and it had a master bedroom fireplace, a living room fireplace and a butler's pantry with the original woodwork. So I said, sold. I don't care that the kitchen is bad and you know we have to do work. We did all that in Baltimore. So I moved out with my kids and the house looked as good as it had in the pictures. Didn't seem like anything was wrong really. And the weather in Minnesota was improving. You know, we got there in April and it was getting warmer and things with snow was melting. But a funny thing happened as the, you know, as the spring came on, I began to feel like I was shutting down. And about six weeks after we'd moved there, I was crying all the time. I wouldn't leave my house to go to social events. And I didn't need a psychiatrist husband, which I do have, to, to tell me that I was having, I was suffering depression. It was the first time I'd ever had anything like that happen. So immediately I went into, you know, mental health care mode and, you know, got a treatment plan together and medicine, exercise, and then, of course, home renovation. That's a really good way to boost your spirit. So we started planning, you know, the near, you know, six-figure kitchen craziness. Um, and as I got better, you know, I was better in, you know, 10 months. It was like, oh, let's stop this medicine. I'm doing great, um, and I'm busy. But, I, but something strange had happened over that time. My husband had changed. My 
wonderful husband of 17 years, my college sweetheart, came to me one day and he'd been getting, he'd been cranky and he said, you know, Sajada, I'm just not in love with you anymore. I just don't feel the same. And I was absolutely blindsided um, by it and I, I didn't understand it. And the good news was he wasn't asking for a divorce. He didn't have a relationship with anyone. He just felt different. So I started thinking about something because I had heard that the people who sold us the house had had a really difficult divorce. Everybody talked about it all over the neighborhood. And I thought, could there be bad energy, just bad feng shui? And I asked, I found the oldest neighbor in in the street and I asked her about the family before that. I said, were they happy? What, was, what were they like? She said, oh, they were a wonderful family, but, you know, things ended up kind of sad for them. Uh, you know, wife, husband, two little girls. They said, they didn't divorce. Oh, no, but the husband died of alcoholism. So then I'm thinking, ooh, this is a bad luck place that I've landed. What am I going to do? I went and I got a book, of course. I want to read books about things and to try and fix things for myself. And I thought that maybe I needed a combination of feng shui, space clearing. I didn't want an exorcist because I'm not Catholic to start with. And I, you know, I just, I felt that these two things I managed to find in one woman, a woman from Panama who lived in the Twin Cities, who was a specialist. And we talked over the phone and she could tell immediately that I needed help. She said she wished she could come to me the next day, but she had a waiting list that so long she couldn't come for two months. And in that process of that time, our dog, um, who had arrived normal, you know, attacked our daughter when I was sitting in the kitchen and bit her in the face and wound up being taken away from animal control. And I thought, you know, Esmeralda, get here as fast as you can. One fall day, she arrived at 9 a.m. A little lady with a Louis Vuitton bag and high heels who was also carrying eight bouquets of flowers. She got to work right away. She sat down in my living room and began sensing the spirits that were all around. Then we started to travel through the house, and she told me the, the feelings that she was getting. We went into the basement. She likes to start from the ground up. And we were in a storeroom where we keep sleds and skates and cans of food. And she said, when you and Tony are down here, do you ever argue? Do you ever get in in big problem fights? And I said, oh, no, not at all. I'm usually down here just getting something by myself. And she said, well, I feel like I'm being hit. I feel very strongly like I'm being hit. And this is the place where a man used to take his wife and he would beat her. And he would take her into this little room in the basement because the children couldn't hear, and they could, you know, they would have this fight. Well, so it swallowed hard and moved on. I said, I, I don't know anything about that. As we were proceeding from the first floor to the second floor, there's a landing with a window, and she stopped there and she said, um, Sujata, do you ever stand here and look out the window? I said, No, I'm always carrying a heavy basket of laundry for my children. And she said, well, there is a woman who stands here. I feel her. She's very, very sad. She stands here and looks out the window. We proceed on to the second floor. She goes into my daughter's bedroom. She looks at her picture. She says she's not happy here. This state is not diverse enough for her. She goes into our 
looking at her picture. <laughs> Easy one, right? Just like when she went into our room and she saw the bed and she was like, hmm, there is a wall between you and your husband. This is not good. And I thought, well, she's probably got a hint of something from me about that. But then as she went around the room, she looked at this chair and she said, that is a very sad chair. That chair is so sad. And that was the chair that I had been crying in all those months that I was depressed. And she had, out of the whole house, she had figured out that chair. So I was starting to get a little bit more confident about her skills. But when we reached the third floor, wow, that's when I really got frightened. The first thing she said was, she said, this, this place does not look the way it should be. I said, what do you mean? She said, this is not a finished space. Did you finish it? I said, no, it's, it's a beautiful finished third floor. The walls are painted some Benjamin Moore sky blue. And I made it as a playroom for my children, but they, some reason they don't want to play here very much. She said, well, you know, what I feel is there's a little girl who lives here. She's very, very scared. And she comes up here to hide because she's been suffering horrific abuse and there were, a lot of, there were a lot of boxes here, and she was able to make herself very small and hide and not be found from her abuser. And when I heard that, that is when I lost it, and I started to cry. And I said, please, Esmeralda, can you, can you send her on? Can you release her? She said, well, the thing is, she likes it here now. She likes your children very much. She loves them. She thinks you're the best family that's ever been here. So she doesn't want to go. But what I can do is make her more comfortable. So the way we made those spirits comfortable is we, we went around the house. We took those flowers. We made bouquets in every single room. The, she had special incense from uh, Latin America that she burned. It was not sage. It was something special. And then we, she prayed, and she, she taught me how to do the prayers, but I was really basically so shell-shocked that I don't know how much I was able to accomplish. But she, she did the work. She rang the bells. Um, at the end of the day, she left after about eight hours of work. And about two days later, I began to feel the air was different in my home, and I realized that it had felt before like a storm was coming, like you're about to have a tornado and that kind of energy. And that was no longer there. And that was a good feeling. And then as the months continued, my husband came back to who he was. He was, he was in love again, and we were doing things, and it was just really a positive experience. But it wasn't a done deal. Because a couple of years later, you know, my daughter had had respiratory problems since she was a, a baby, and she was having problems and, you know, sick in bed pretty seriously and went to the hospital probably almost every year. Um, she was sick one day when she was sick in bed, and I was sitting at her side trying to decide whether it was going to be one of those hospital nights or whether we'd pull through with a nebulizer. She said, Mom, that man's looking at me again. And I said, what do you mean, honey? She said, look right past the door. Can't you see him? Can't you see that old man? And it came out that whenever she was sick in bed, there was a man, who, and her bedroom door was open. She always wanted her doors open and wouldn't go to other floors by herself. She would see an old man there. 
And, you know, I thought it could be a delusion, this or that. And then her little brother said, yeah, I've seen an old man in the mirror in the bathroom on the third floor. So I was really getting some chills there. And I thought, what, what do I do with this information? Do I call Esmeralda back to do more? She missed this person before. Would, <laughs> will she get him or who else is there? Um, it's an old house. 1913 was the, the year the house was built. So I, I thought about that. I thought I could have done a research on really if there had been crimes in the house, this or that. And then I could have thought, too, you know, what my daughter was saying to me is she was not f- afraid of the old man. She was not afraid at all. It was a very neutral thing. And so perhaps the old man was the father who had died of alcoholism, who had two little girls, that no one said anything was wrong with him except, you know, he had this drinking problem. So I thought I decided that was going to be the thing. I wasn't going to look any further into it. But I still wasn't comfortable, so I came up with a very radical solution. I sold the house and moved back to Baltimore. <laughs> yeah. I love that. It, it took about two years to do it. And I swore during those years in Minnesota that I would never, ever again buy an old house. I'd do a McMansion. I'd do something new. I'd foreclosures. You know, no one had lived in them. But um, I wound up buying an old house in Tuxedo Park, even older. But I did my due diligence on the families that lived there before. I can trace them back to the 50s. And happy people living nearby. And when I'm in that house at night or in the day, anywhere I go, I do have a feeling in that house. But all it is is a warm embrace. Thanks. Okay, so that was Sujata Massey's story from It's a Mystery. Before we get into the discussion, we want to thank Golden West, which is a Southwest vegan forward restaurant on the avenue in Hamden, serving up delicious food from their carryout window, um, also delivering, uh, also having carryout food and their delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, give them a visit. And we also want to thank Baltimore Magazine, a longtime sponsor of the podcast. You can find them online and on the newsstand. So what was it like? What do you remember about sharing that story that night? Hi, Jessica and Laura. It's so nice to be together again. Um, I remember that evening being so different than what I expected. I, I write mysteries, and that means that I have the chance to edit myself. And so I typically look at a line that I've written um, 20 or 30 times before it actually makes it to the public. And storytelling, it's just completely on the fly. And I had gone into this event thinking, oh, it's just going to be like a regular book talk. Wow, was I wrong. You know, first of all, it's a gigantic theater with, you know, hundreds of people of, I don't know if we had a thousand people or not. And the other storytellers where they were all telling stories that were, you know, completely real and authentic. And it just sort of knocked me for a loop. And I thought, wow, I'm, you know, I'm telling my story, but it's going to be very different. And I don't have that much control over it. And um, I also remember that night that my family was not with me. At the time, you know, my kids were younger, like I had somebody in elementary school and somebody in 
uh, start of high school and they were, and my husband wasn't there. I think he was taking care of the kids. And I think that's kind of ironic because what I wound up doing was telling a story that was completely so revealing about my family and they weren't even there. Do they, have they heard the story since? Yes. Um, (laughs) I, it, it, I was, I was really shocked when I, I first heard it on the air, um, sitting in my living room, um, and my husband was there. And I remember that there was one point where he said out loud, I don't remember feeling that way about you, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like that I had taken it more seriously, um, than he had thought, you know, I'd written, I'd, I'd spoken about problems, you know, spoken about like a fear that our marriage might not survive. Yeah. Of course, when he was telling me this, you know, I didn't think it was so such a big deal. This is years later. So, you know, who knows, but it was definitely, um, something that I, I thought quite a bit afterwards, how are other people who are involved in the story feeling about it? Yes, yes. That's always the complicated thing about sharing a personal story is that we are none of us an island, right? And so we involve other people in our stories. And you, I have found it's fairly difficult to predict how people will react. Um, but I want to ask you, you know, one of the things you say in the story is that you weren't a believer in ghosts prior to this experience. You were someone who understood like ghosts and mysteries to be acts of imagination, right? And so I guess I wonder, are, do you consider yourself now a believer in ghosts? And how has that changed the way you are in the world, but also as a writer? I think I'm much more open to unexpected things. Um, you know, last summer I was talking with a neighbor who said that he felt that um, a person who had passed away reappeared as a butterfly who flew into his into the place he was staying and stayed on his shoulder for half an hour and wouldn't leave him. And yeah. I completely got that. I recently had a a talk with my daughter because in this story, you'll remember that I say, I talk about how she said that there was an old man who would appear in the door when she was ill. And so I asked her today about the house and whether she still believed that there were ghosts because now she's she's a 22 year old woman. She said, mom, I can't believe you're even bothering me about that. Of course it's true. Every time I was sick, this man came and stood in the doorway. There were always people walking over my ceiling. Um, You know, so she was telling me exactly the same thing that she had, you know, been experiencing when she was a younger child. that said, there's even more um, going on in my mind about it, um, especially since the age of COVID. You know how we keep hearing about aerosols? Yeah, we, yeah. And that we're we're always, you know, the, the stuff is going out in our breath. There are these droplets, this and that. And I've thought to myself, what if you're in a house and you cry all the time? What if you're in the house and that somebody's always shouting? What if somebody just, you know, they just vomit a lot? Who knows? You know, it could be <laughs> anything. And when we bought that house, we bought the house and the, and the walls looked very nice. And we never painted, we never painted that house. 
And I began thinking later on, what if the house accumulates its own kind of DNA from the people that live there? I think Jason Blum probably wants to get in touch with you for his next horror film. He's, he's the you know Blumhouse horror movies. That's a great idea. <laughs> you should write that, Sujata. Yeah, I don't know. I just think that we know even that you know, when you're attracted to somebody, they give off a smell and we don't really understand what the smell is. We might not think we smell the smell, but we're experiencing the smell. So I think that that house, not only was that house never painted by us when we moved in, but it also was airtight. This is a house in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It was a, you know, it was a stucco house and it only had two doors. What I live in in Baltimore now is I live in an old wood frame house. The house actually had 10 doors when we moved in, 10 doors on three floors. So there's a tremendous air exchange in our house. So are you saying that you think there's a chance that uh, a house can retain in its walls the DNA of previous inhabitants. Absolutely, 100%. And I think that the way that you, those things dissipate is if you have a lot of airflow, if you do things like you plaster, you know, replaster your house, you repaint it, you do drywall. Um, you know, I think those things can help. And that's what we did. You know, I, after that experience in Minneapolis, when I was so scared, I thought I'm never going to buy another old house. And wouldn't you believe I buy a house that's like an 1890s house here. So I, I was unable to resist buying a historic house. Um, but I am absolutely convinced that this house is not haunted. Well, so what, have you had any contact with the folks who bought the house from you? Um, yeah, actually, I, I went there and what the first thing they did was they repainted it. Um, and it's like, it's beautiful, sparkling white, they completely redecorated it, you would never believe that we had we had lived there. And I think they've been very successful in that house. There may be a family, you know, we, we don't, we're not close to them, but I think they've been successful in that house. And it's, it's worked out fine for them. So I think that Part of the, the issue is I think that some people are more sensitive to picking up, up vibrations. Like I talked about Esmeralda, this woman who came through and could feel all these things that I couldn't articulate. And my daughter experienced things, um, but I know I was unhappy. And I think that that vulnerability made me more sensitive to realizing that my environment was difficult. So like, I, I deeply believe that. So I, mean, I don't mean to cut you off, Laura, but I really, because I, and I've said this before on the podcast, I'm a person who in my twenties, especially had just deep clinical depression. And at that time I felt so much more connected to, to like another I don't know how to say it, like another plane of existence, be it, you know, good or bad. Um, and I've been on antidepressants for a, a long amount of time now. And I would definitely say that if, if I were in a haunted house on my antidepressants, I'd have zero clue. <laughs> like, I don't feel connected at all in the well, same and what way. It, it's like what you're talking about is a kind of porousness, right? Where you're like, you, you're open like to 
receiving stimulus or signals or influence in a way that you might you wouldn't be at another time. That's the, I mean that's that's really interesting. So you were already you were unhappy because you moved like because of the move being hard, and that put you in a situation where you were more vulnerable to the effects of of the spirits in the house. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, and th there was another element too. I moved when I was 41 years old, and I think that the 40s are a really interesting time because, you know, for for me in my 20s and my 30s, it was one good thing after another. It was going to my dream college. It was getting a job at a newspaper. It was becoming a novelist. It was marrying my best friend from college. It was adopting two children who were healthy. It just seemed to me that life was great. Life was never gonna go wrong. How would, it would only go wrong like when you were old, you might get, you might get cancer or, or somebody you love might be ill. And then all of a sudden, what, what happens, I think, in the 40s, you start to understand that life doesn't work that way. And life can be really hard. And those kind of random weird things started happening with my relationships. And, you know, now I've come back to Baltimore and I'm going to tell you, I've had great things happen in my career. I've had difficult things emotionally. I've had, you know, we've had health crises. We've had joys, we've had every kind of thing happen in this house, yet I know it's not connected to the house. Um, you know, it's different. It's like, I, I feel like I'm just much more, um, just mu much more aware of, of what, you know, that life has no promise of endless bliss. And that was what I was banking on when I was 41 years old. And so that, and yeah, and there, when you, and you move there, you mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, um, the age 48, you're at the nadir of your, of your happiness. Apparently it's like, it's the dip and then things start to go back up. Um, I am currently 48. And I want to confirm the truth of that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's so fascinating. That's, I mean, just the intersection and interplay of one's own mood and then the context and environment in which that mood is, is existing, I think is really fascinating. Obviously it's something that's fascinated people, you know, like Henry James and all those folks from, you know, all then to now. And we understand that, you know, you having had this experience um, have, some tips or advice or um, thoughts for people. Ah, let's hear them. Yes, I think <laughs> that there actually is a way to that you can take these preventive steps, honestly, with your environment, um, especially if you're buying and if you're if you're in an old house. And I guess the first thing I'd say is, if you want to learn about your house's history, you know, which is I got, you know, the neighborhood I was in, I just got negative gossip. I would encourage people to find out good things about the people that lived in the house before them and not just the immediate people. Like I've found in this, this, this time around in my house in Baltimore, I learned that the family that lived here before gave this memorable St. Patrick's Day party that almost the whole neighborhood was invited to. And I love thinking about that. I know that at another time, our house was a daycare center. I, you know, that really makes me smile to think about all those little kids running around. So houses have these, you know, these layered histories. And so I, I, 
I recommend that if you hear one thing that's negative, ask a little bit more because there might be something that gives you a good feeling. I strongly recommend painting your house <laughs> on the inside so that you don't have like, you know, I have now I have this thing about all these aerosols, you know, you don't have those old aerosols around. At the same time, I think it's really great if you can you can feel something about bringing your house back to where it was. Like I remember in an old house that we had once, we had picked out, we had a feeling for a kind of wallpaper we wanted to use. And then as we were preparing the room to paint, we found that the original wallpaper was in those colors. Oh, and wow. yes, and this time we're, we're, we're right now, we're painting our house and we decided to paint our house, uh, you know, this a dark green trim. And um, we learned, uh, you know, when we were looking around, at really looking at our windows, we see that the original paint underneath the white is green. So we're doing something that is, I think it feels good, good for the house. I, th I think that we're honoring, honoring what the house is. And I think that's an important thing to do if you can do it. And then the last thing I want, the, the two other things I wanted to say is, when you're sad, um, be with other people. Talk to somebody you trust, whether it's it's somebody from your faith community, a friend, um, therapist. I think that the haunted houses are the houses where people didn't get help. And they're the houses where people stayed unhappy. And they're the houses where people had secrets. And um, so I think that the more that you can dissipate those really painful feelings, um, you know, by sharing them and being open about them, you know, the better for, for, for the environment. Then I guess the last thing I want to say is listen to your kids. You never know what they know that you don't. You think kids are more like, like one, like if you are in a sad moment, you're, you can be more porous. Do you think kids are more likely or more open to seeing and experiencing spirits because of their, I don't know, they don't have as much baggage as we do or. Yeah, but yeah, I think maybe so. And also I think that um, the spirits like children, you know, from what I hear that they are drawn to the children and, and they, you know, focus on, you know, they like children. Like I think every people like animals, they like children, um, <laughs> you know, in general. So I think that you know, that's why we see and, and, and all the stories, so many stories we see, um, you know, I've started to watch more, you know, kind of these high quality horror movies. Like I, I'm not a horror movie person, but now there are these things that are streaming that are done in other countries that are very, very interesting. Like there's mm -hmm. an, an Indian um, one typewriter that I liked a lot on Netflix. And, you know, the, the this, it's universal that children are contacted and children see things. Ah, oh, that's fascinating and terrifying and also fascinating. <laughs> but it's in, I love what you said that like, try to cleanse yourself or, you know, talk about, share your sadness so that you don't inadvertently haunt, like leave your own house yeah. being haunted. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think that you you create that milieu, and I'm not trying to put blame on anybody that's feeling bad. And every you know, people certainly have a right to be depressed and and to to you know suffer terrible things. And um, but 
when you have somebody to share it with, then your home can be your solace. It can be your safe place then. It doesn't have to be your prison. Yeah, yeah. Do you wow. think we'll ever write a ghost story? I think so. I think that I am much more um, spiritually inclined since this experience about, and in you know certain religions, there's a belief that the soul lingers for a certain amount of time before it leaves. And that's something I'm writing about in a, um, in a book right now. And my character's um, occasional, th you know, thoughts about this person who died and whether they're being guided by that person. Well, that sounds great. We look forward to that book and we want to thank you for joining us today. It was really, really fascinating. Yeah, this was one of my most favorite discussions that we've had. Yeah, and, absolutely. Well, it's nice to talk about these things we don't understand and feel like we don't have to have an answer about it. And also we don't have to be afraid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, it feels, rich to consider all the possibilities for what, what this stuff could be and what it could mean. Before we finish up today, we want to thank the Wine Source on Elm Avenue in Hamden for being a sponsor of this new podcast. And we want to thank Maureen Harvey for producing the podcast. And we want to encourage you to come out uh, to cope and not come out. Unfortunately, we can't go out to a show, but you can go on over to our website, stoopstorytelling.com and learn about the show we're doing on November 12th. Um, it's called Head in the Stars and it's all stories about people who have traveled to space, who are um, studying space, who are obsessed with space, who daydream about space. So check that out at stoopstorytelling.com. Thanks again, Sujata, for joining us. And we will be back in a few weeks with another episode of the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. Until then, stay safe. Wow.